Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you again this morning. Welcome. Uh, let me add my welcome to Josh's. So glad that you're tuning in this morning, both from Wild Street and uh, also from St. Matt's. Uh, it really is great to have you together. And, you know, hopefully you'll be chatting to one another afterwards as well. Uh, just a heads up, we're going to have a Q&A again this morning uh, on Slido. The details will come up on your screen at appropriate times so that you can uh, uh, log into that and then add any questions that you might have about the talk this morning and uh, we'll, we'll answer some of those later on in our meeting this morning. I'm going to pray as we uh, come together to uh, look at God's Word, Psalm 29. Grab your Bibles, have them open uh, as we look at together this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you so much for uh, all that you reveal of yourself to us in your Word, that we might know you, the only true and living God and that we might understand what it means to live with you as our maker, as our saviour, as our friend. So be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, Ray Galea has written a great little book called uh, God is Enough. Some of you may have seen it, some of you may have read it, hopefully. Uh, let me just read to you a little bit from the preface of what Ray says here. <clears throat> uh, he says, let me read it to you. He says, what are your disappointments in life? Perhaps, like me, you have unmet superficial desires. Perhaps it is achieving that certain position in the company or getting that high mark in a significant exam. Or maybe you are scarred by grief so profound that you can hardly talk about it. Or perhaps you're not so much disappointed as unmotivated. You've allowed the good and not so good to hijack the best. And the passionate days of your early Christian life seemed so long ago. Whatever the case may be, the, may be, the issue is the same for all of us. Is God enough? Now, the verse from the Bible that has driven Ray's uh, desire to refocus his own life uh, and therefore the message of his book is Psalm, comes from Psalm 73, verse 25. Uh, you'll see it there on the screen. Let me read it to you. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, I wonder how many of us truly think and act that way. That's a really significant challenge to us, isn't it? And yet it truly should be the mindset of every Christian. You know, probably the most famous question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, asks this question. What is the chief end of man? Or what is the chief end of humanity? And the answer it gives is this. It says that the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy his songs that were used in Israelite worship. Uh, Psalm 29 itself is attributed to King David. Uh, have a look at what he calls for in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 29. So verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. <clears throat> now David there issues a call to give God what he is worthy of. It's a psalm written for God's people, but it includes the heavenly beings in its scope. All creation, even the angels, are called on to give to God the glory he is due. We should not withhold the glory that God is due. See, that's how we worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness there in, verse, in the second part of verse 2. 
we set God apart as worthy of all glory, of all honor, of all praise. And we're to set up and, and we are set apart to live for his glory, honor, and praise. We ascribe to him, that is, we assign to him or attribute to him the glory that truly belongs to him and to no other. Which is why idolatry, can I say, is so wrong. Those who, who worship idols uh, take what God has done and attribute it to maybe a dead bit of wood or a, a piece of scrap metal or indeed idolatry, of course, can be anything that replaces God. So how do we do it then? How do we ascribe God the glory he is due? Well, you won't ascribe to God the glory he is due unless you truly know and understand your God and the glory that he is due. Now, J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, do you truly know your God? And then he goes on. He says, for what higher, more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? And for King David, the knowledge we need to have is actually bound up in his name. You know, 18 times, David uses God's personal name, Yahweh, uh, or the Lord in capital letters there in your Bibles, 18 times in this short psalm. It's a name which describes his character. But interestingly, uh, David focuses on, on just one aspect of God where his glory is seen. That is the glory in God's voice, in his word. Uh, let me just pick it up for you at, from verse 3 there um, <clears throat> in, in Psalm 29. I'm going to read down to, down to verse 9, so grab your Bibles. So verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. And seven times David refers to the voice of the Lord in this particular section. So clearly he believes that the voice of the Lord displays God's glory somehow. See what is, see what is said about God's voice here? So notice there, the voice of the Lord is over in verse 3. Uh, it's powerful in verse 4. It's full of majesty also in verse 4. The voice of the Lord breaks, verse 5. It shakes, verse 8, and it makes in verse 9. See, the voice of God is the way that he exercises his great power. And David uses the imagery of the storm to describe God's great power and glory. In verse 3, the voice of God is over the waters. It seems likely to be a reference to the original creation in Genesis chapter 1, where the, remember, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God simply spoke, and the whole creation took form and came into existence. That God simply speaks and our universe comes into existence is mind-blowing power and glory. But have you noticed that what God speaks into uh, existence, that is creation, creation itself speaks out for God. That is, creation itself declares the glory of its maker. Now have a look back uh, in Psalm 19, just a couple of Psalms back there for a moment, <clears throat> or it'll be on your screen. Let me read to you uh, from Psalm 19, verse 1. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Notice that no part of creation is silent about the glory of its creator. The heavens declare, the sky proclaims, each day pours out speech, each night reveals knowledge. No one, no one misses out on seeing and hearing the glory of God because creation's voice goes out through all the earth. Every single corner of the universe carries the fingerprint of God. Creation never stops talking about the majesty and glory of God. You know, Ray says in his book that God speaks to each one of us 24 hours a day, seven days a week through the world that he has made. If the creation itself declares and gives God the glory that he is due, then how much more should that part of creation that is made in his image, that is you and I, declare and give him the glory that he is due? But of course, we must be aware, mustn't we, of the power of his voice. Because notice what it says here. It's a voice that thunders over many waters. Now, whether that's the flood that brought God's judgment on the intolerable level of human rebellion in the time of Noah, or whether it's the spectacular deliverance when God parted the Red Sea to rescue his people, Israel, he rules over all the mighty waters, whether storm or flood or raging sea. See, God is not controlled or at the mercy of his creation. He controls his creation. He rules over it. See, God's voice is powerful as it rules over the waters of his creation. And it's majestic in its expression and its wisdom. In fact, so powerful is God's voice that it even breaks in fact, it tears to shreds the great cedars of Lebanon, he says. I mean, they were legendary in, for their size and their strength. And yet God's voice can unleash a storm that can rip through them all. And there are no limits to the power and reach of God's voice as it thunders from Lebanon in the north, through the mountains of Syrian, to the shaking of the wilderness of Kadesh in the south. You see, both nations and nature come under the ultimate rule of God. Such is the might and power and glory and majesty of our God. See, when we truly know our God, we won't treat him lightly. We'll stand together as those gathered in the temple did and cry out, glory, we will know as they knew that all glory belongs to our Lord and our God. See, King David saw things very differently to most uh, non-believers would in our day. I mean, they, they see the, or they saw the lightning, or believers in our day, sorry, non-believers in our day, see the lightning and thunder and storms, uh, the hurricanes and earthquakes and floods, and they just kind of see the physical properties that cause them, you know, things like low pressure systems, etc., I mean, insurance companies used to be closer to the money. Uh, in fact, uh, in the past, many insurance companies had a, uh, had a clause in their policies that was given the title, Act of God. It's a legal term for events 
outside of human control. Now, things such as sudden floods or other natural disasters for which no one can be held responsible, especially not the insurance company. It was their way of explaining the unexplained, the uncontrollable aspects of our physical world. But for David, it's not unexplained. He knows that our creator has control over his creation. Believers know that the physical properties that the experts talk of to explain natural events have been built into our physical world by its creator. And that God himself speaks in thunder and lightning. And so the only right right response for the people of Israel was to gather together in the temple where God dwells and with a sense of humility and awe to proclaim God's glory. It's a timely reminder for us, isn't it? I mean, I think probably one of the dangers of modern Christianity is actually kind of maybe being too chummy with God, too familiar. We rightly kind of emphasise that God is our loving Heavenly Father, that he has brought us near to him, that he is concerned for the very details of our everyday life, that we are family members, brothers and sisters with Christ, that he calls us friends. We get that. We get the family closest. It's right, isn't it? But what we can sometimes forget is the godness of God, that he is the creator and we are the creature that he made and sustains all things and that we are made and sustained by him. You know, at times we forget the enormity of this God who has made us his friends. It's the elephant holding hands with the ant. We need to remember whom we're holding hands with. You know, church buildings and architecture actually used to be designed to remind you that God was mind-blowingly big and that you were puny that you didn't enter lightly into the presence of the Almighty. The problem is that it also highlighted your separation from God. I mean, these days we realise that a, a building actually doesn't bring you into the presence of God. That only happens around God's Word and through His Spirit. But there are times when we are in danger of forgetting that our God is an awesome God in the true sense of that word who reigns over the entire universe forevermore. That's what we're told. And that one day soon, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, willingly or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. See, when we truly recognise his glory, we cannot help but declare it. It's not hard to see why the psalm ends by focusing on God's universal rule over all creation and every nation forever and ever. Let me just read to you from those last couple of verses of Psalm 29, picking it up at verse 10 there. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. You know, politicians often position themselves on the right side of those that they suspect may be the next leaders of their parties. Uh, They align themselves with the one who has the power to promote or demote. They understand where the power lies and they want to be on the right side of it while it lasts. But you see, God has no rival. He's no temporal ruler. He's enthroned forever, the psalmist says. 
And so what really matters in this world is whether you've aligned yourself with this ruler, the Lord of glory who is enthroned forever. Because God is king over all the earth. And his plans and his purposes for this world will come about. No one can stop them. And yet the great thing is, God invites us to come and be a part of his grand story. The rebellion of our world against God is visible everywhere at the moment, isn't it? But there's absolutely nothing to fear. God is not in danger of losing his place as God, no matter who wishes to oppose him. Not only is he victorious, but he wants to share his victory with everyone who aligns themselves with him, to those who ascribe the glory that is due his name. He blesses them with strength and peace. Now, one commentator noted that the psalm, which starts with glory to God in the highest, actually ends with peace on earth. Now, that ought to be a hint, I think, as to how God blesses his people with peace. I mean, at the birth of Jesus, you might remember, the angels announced that he would bring peace to men and women on earth. And Romans 5, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, helps us see how he achieves that peace on our behalf. Uh, have a look at Romans 5. It's, it's there on your screen, verse 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's through Jesus that we can have peace with God. When we align ourselves with Jesus, we're aligning ourselves with God himself. All of us were once enemies of God. But through Jesus' death, our rebellion was paid for. Our sin was dealt with. So that now when we put our trust in Jesus, we have peace with God as we wait, rejoicing that one day everyone will see the glory of God. And in the meantime, we live every day with our chief aim being to live lives that glorify God and enjoy him forever. The American uh, preacher and author John Piper uh, is well known for a particular phrase that he made famous. Uh, it has kind of become the mantra of his life's work, if you like. And it really comes from this question about what is the chief end of man in the Westminster Catechism. And uh, Piper's phrase goes like this. You've probably heard it. it. It goes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, Piper would answer the question posed in our first point, is God enough? By saying, God is enough. God really is enough. The question is, for you and for me, is will you believe that? Maybe it's God plus obedient children, or God plus success in my job. Maybe it's God plus respect, plus wealth, plus health, plus, well, you can finish the sentence. Friends, God is enough. Whenever you go looking for something else to make you happy or content besides God, 
you can be sure that you never will be. Nothing has the capacity to make you happy or content but your creator and saviour, Jesus Christ. Nothing else can do it. And the great thing is, if God is enough for you, if you are most satisfied in him, then he will be most glorified in you, in your life as you live it out. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, then absolutely every aspect of my life is lived in service of pointing to and magnifying God's godness, his glory, his majesty and power and knowledge and grace and mercy and love. It reminds us what we read in uh, Revelation 5, what we read a little bit earlier uh, from verse 13 there. Let me read to you from and remind you what we read in Revelation 5. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. See, the aim, the goal to which every person who calls themselves Christian should be devoting their life to is to display and promote and magnify God's glory, to lift up God in the world by realising and living as though God is indeed enough. Friends, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege of being known by you, loved by you, rescued from our sin and giving us new life in you. Please help us to know you better so that we can love you and honour you as we should. In Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, we're going to continue in prayer.